You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new, because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. Hello and welcome to Why Is This Happening with me, your host, Chris Hayes. Well, we had a great time in Philly during the third stop on our WithPod Live national tour. It's been great to hear from so many of you about how much you enjoyed it. We're so thrilled to share the second half of the doubleheader with Joy Reid. Hope you enjoy. What's up, Philly? Good evening, everybody, and welcome to our live recording of Why Is This Happening, the Chris Hayes podcast. I'm Donnie Holloway, producer of Why Is This Happening. I got to say, thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. We have been looking so forward to tonight's conversation. We have an incredible talk ahead. And as we go throughout the program, don't forget to share some of your favorite moments online using the hashtag WithPod. You can keep the conversation going online by using the hashtag WithPod. Yeah, go Philly! We are feeling all that love here in this beautiful space tonight, and I want you to share even more of that love and join me in giving a warm round of applause to our host, Chris Hayes! What's up, Philly? How are you? Um, so I'm going to do something different than usually. How many? I'm curious, and you can be truthful here, and my feelings won't be hurt. How many... How many people listen to the podcast? Good. Um, so usually at the beginning of the podcast, because I just need, apparently need to talk all the time about everything, which is, I don't know why. It's, just, it's my job, but also I would do it if it weren't. <laughs> Let's be honest here. Um, I give a spiel, some sort of take, but to be totally honest, I'm going to cut the take because I am so excited to introduce our guest tonight, the one and only Joy Reid. Come on out, Joy. I would like the podcast record to reflect they give her a standing, a standing ovation, which doesn't, which you can't see when this is streaming. How are you? I'm, I'm, thank you. I'm good, but not as good as the Phillies, who apparently are up 3-0 over Arizona. (laughs) Um, First of all, I want to say thank you for being here tonight. Joy did her show and raced over here, (laughs) so she's got her own doubleheader. Can I, I, I have never, I've known you for a long time. You're a beloved colleague and friend, and I have never gotten to, like, interview you. (laughs) We've talked on air for years about... What's, where are you from? What's your, I want to start, I want the, I want like, if I'm writing, we sit down, I'm doing the Joy Reid bio. Where were you born? East Flatbush, 
Brooklyn. Okay. So kind of, I'm kind of from a, a multiple set of places. I was born in East Flatbush. And then when I was two years old, my mom, my sister, and I moved to Denver, Colorado. Denver, Colorado, yes. We got a little love there. Um, and I was raised there along with my baby brother who was born there. So I, I grew up in Colorado. Um, and then at age uh, 17, my mom unfortunately passed away. And so I moved back to East Flatbush, lived with my auntie. And then from there, I lived in New York. And then I spent 14 years in the great state of Florida. Right. So I've lived equal parts of my life in Denver, New York, and Florida. I don't... You can tell me if this is too personal? Yeah. That must have been unbelievably difficult at 17. Yeah. To lose your mom, to move. How did you... What were the tools that you developed in that moment? I had no tools because I'm Generation X. So we didn't have this thing called self-care that the young people do. I don't know what that is. So I didn't have any tools. I mean, honestly, you know, my parents are immigrants. Um, My mom came here from... Guyana, which people mistakenly call British Guyana, but it's just Guyana. And my father was from the Congo. I have no idea how they met, but somehow they ended up in Iowa, where my sister was born. Um, but I, I do Wait, know how... you really don't know how they ended up in Iowa? I don't. I don't know how... I know how he <laughs> did. I know how my father did. So my father ended up there because he was on the same program that Barack Obama's dad was, that after these African countries gained independence, there was a food fight between Moscow and the United States to get the sort of big men from these communities, from these tribes, to send their sons to either Moscow or to the United States. And so... Soft power diplomacy Soft power diplomacy, because the idea is you would educate these African men, and then they would go back and run their countries, right? And so my dad came over um, because his his father was a big man uh, in the Hausa tribe in Kinshasa, And he came, and I think what happened is that government, they just literally threw a dart, and they said, there's got to be a place where we can have, you know, an education for our boys that is affordable. I like this Iowa. It's a short name. It starts with I. (laughs) I think we go to Iowa. Go. Go and be successful. And he said, okay. (laughs) So he went. Now, how how he met my mother, I honestly don't know. But the funny sort of story is when he was there, there were actually a lot of African students in Iowa. And so he's in Iowa City. And for a while, he lives with this white family because, you know, there was still a lot of racism. Staying in the dorms was really not necessarily where he wanted to be. And he lived with this white woman whose the mom in the family was named Joy Ann. So my mother is Caribbean, and if you go to the Caribbean, everybody has Anne. They're Mary Anne, Joy Anne, Joan Anne, Tone Anne, everything Anne. It's like a very Caribbean name. So I just assumed that the Joy Anne was a Caribbean thing. But this elderly white woman, her name is Joy Anne. Wow. So I'm actually named after, she just recently passed, I got to know her, um, and her son calls himself my uncle. So my uncle Carl reached out to me when I was an adult and said, I'm your uncle Carl. And he sent me a picture and I'm like, okay, this, this, this white dude is my uncle, but okay, it's all good. And um, it's because Joy Anne is his mom. That's who I'm named after. So they... So they were there. They met there. So they somehow met in Iowa, had my sister, went back to New York, had me, and then they broke up and somehow got back together and had my brother. But there was like a whole period where they weren't together. So my my parents' lives are a mystery. I don't know that much about it. And Mm. since my mother was Caribbean and, you know, we just grew up with her, you know, West Indian moms don't talk a lot. They don't tell you things. So I actually didn't know that she had cancer. We didn't know anything. 
And so she passed away and it was like a total shock because we didn't have the thing where you go through the process of beginning to grieve in advance. We just didn't know. And I had gotten into Harvard. My sister was at Brown. She was actually away at school. And my brother was 12. And so an 18-year-old, a 17-year-old, and a 12-year-old, we just were suddenly just orphans. We just didn't have anyone. And so my Auntie Dolly, who was the only girl in the 11 kids in my mom's family, and they were super close. So I went to live back with her in East Flatbush. And my godmother, who was my mom's best friend, my Auntie Bernice, like reached out to me and was like, I'm your Auntie Bernice, you're coming with me. And so I had these two women who sort of swooped in and became like my surrogate moms. So, and I, I just was, came back from Jamaica where we just celebrated my Auntie Bernice's 90th birthday. Wow. And, you know, obviously you were, you excelled as a student in high school. I mean, that is a very difficult set of circumstances in which to show up at Harvard University. Yeah. As a freshman. Yeah. And Harvard now, it's a lot cooler. I have a couple um, young cousins that went. Um, Harvard, when I went there, not so cool. Um, Not very diverse. It was about 6% African-American, but black, not even just African-American, but Africans and black folks from around the world. And we were not really welcome there. You know, it was a hostile environment. And also I kind of had lost my identity because growing up in a West Indian family, the worst thing you can do is ever say or indicate or hint in any way that you want to be a doctor or a lawyer because, oh, my daughter is going to be a doctor. I'm so proud. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. And then they tell everybody in the family. So everybody thinks, oh, this child's going to be a doctor. This is going to be amazing. She's going to Harvard. Oh, God, Harvard was so proud. And then I got there. And after my mom passed, I didn't believe in medicine. I didn't believe that, you know, I was devastated and I blamed the doctors. Mm-hmm. And I was like, they failed us all. Mm. And I was like, there's no way I would hyperventilate walking into hospitals. I'm like, how am I going to be a doctor when I don't have faith in it? So I got there and did something that I had never done, which is fail. I failed classes. I was literally going to fail out because I couldn't concentrate. I was deeply depressed. I mean, how? (laughs) I I, I I can't imagine being any other way under those circumstances. I was spiraling. I was, you know, I just didn't know how to process anything. My sister actually did therapy. I never did it. So I was just kind of trying to figure it out. And it was really hard. And I didn't have a mom. And my mother was like my biggest cheerleader. And we were super close. I was the closest to her. And so I just didn't really know what I wanted to do. So I ended up just taking a year off. I was like, either I'm going to fail out of this school. Um, And I just had never experienced academic failure. So I didn't even know what that even looked like. And so I took a year off and I had to kind of figure it out. I tried to go live with my Auntie Dolly, who I love her to death, but she was a very evangelical Christian. And, uh, you know, not one, not two, not three, but four nights, days a week of church was a lot. And I was a Methodist. I was like, I didn't understand. I was like one hour church and then home to watch the football game. That's the kind of church I grew up in. Um, But this was like evangelical four days a week church and it was too much. So I ended up moving on my own and I moved to Fort Greene, Brooklyn. I got an apartment, yes. And it was Brooklyn Boheme. It was Spike Lee was around the corner. You know, people, Missy Elliott in her very early days was shooting music videos on my block. Like it was like the bohemia of Brooklyn. It was that moment, you know, in that era when Brooklyn was just dope. You know, it was just a creative, you know, cornucopia of of incredible creativity. And I got an apartment and this is gonna make y'all mad. I paid $450 a month. Wow for an apartment overlooking Fort Greene Park. And I moved into this apartment and the man downstairs had a big German shepherd and he was this big Italian retired policeman. And he was like, this is what you're gonna do. When you come out, 
You want to always go left. Well, go right. The projects are to the right. You're going to get robbed. Go left. So he would, and then he was like, if you come home, and if you have any problems, you knock on my door. My dog is a police dog, and he's got what you call a death grip. If he bites you, he's not going to let you go until I say so. So if anybody bothers you, you just knock on my door. So I had like, you know, so I had like help, and I ate ramen, and I survived. So you, so the, then you went back to Harvard? Went back. And you graduated. S- switched my major. You were not going to be a doctor. Was not going to be a doctor. Switched my major to their equivalent of a film degree. And I ended up getting a documentary film degree because like Spike Lee inspired me. And I was like, I'm going to go back and be Spike Lee. And how'd you end up in Florida? So <laughs> I came out of school with the idea that I was going to be Spike Lee and all I needed was a crew. Um, so a crew. I needed a crew. I needed a crew so we could shoot films and I could be a filmmaker. That was my thing. And you so, wanted to make feature films? Feature Docu- films. Okay. Yeah, I didn't want to do documentary, yeah. but Harvard's super snooty and they won't literally let you make, right. they want you to make documentaries. Totally, yeah. Which yeah. I, was against my will, but I was like, okay, fine. But so you I, wanted to make feature films. I wanted to make features. And so, was, but I need a little crew. I need a cameraman. I need a team. So I took a job for $5.40 an hour at School of Visual Arts and became a manager of the production office. And that's where I met Jason Reed, my now husband, who was at the time was kind of my employee because I was kind of his boss. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Uh, Michelle and Barack situation. There was no Me Too movement at the time, (laughs) so it was totally fine. Um, He asked me out on a date, and our first date, we went to see a movie and McDonald's. And we split it because we both were broke, and he paid for the movie, and I paid for the McDonald's. And uh, I let him supersize it. <laughs> so he was very impressed with me. I was like, you know what, y'all? You know, usually I don't do this. <laughs> you go on and supersize it. He was like, oh, she's a baller. And I was like, yes, I am. <laughs> she's got a Harvard degree. She's my boss. She got a Harvard degree. She's my boss. She's balling on a budget. <laughs> and so we met. And so it was like we were going to be a crew. And we ended up, instead of making features, him and I and his group of friends, we ended up doing a music video show instead and not going to L.A. and beca- doing features. We did this show called Video Dub Play. We produced it. This was during the, mu- you know, the era when MTV actually played music videos. And so did BET and all these networks, right? And so, you know, we're all Caribbean, you know, American or Caribbean or whatever. And um, we started doing this music video show. And back then it was easy to do it because all of the record companies would provide the music videos for free. And you just put the show together. And we did this show. It was so much. It was like the most fun I've ever had. Like we produced this show. We were a crew of like six young black people. I was the producer. Jason was the director. And his best friend, Joe, was the cinematographer. And we would go around and I ordered us all these same matching black jackets. And so when we would show up, you know, to like backstage at a concert, like Mary J is doing a concert or something and there'll be all these reggae artists playing and these six young black people show up in the same jacket and they were used to only white crews. All the crews were all white, even for MTV, even for BET, there was nobody black. So all the artists would look at us and come to us. So we were getting interviews with everybody because they were like, we want to talk to them. We don't know who they are, but we love their little cute little (laughs) dub plate jackets. We're like, we'll talk to y'all. So we were getting interviews with everybody and we did this amazing show. And so after doing that for a while, I got pregnant and um, then uh, I kind of got pregnant again. (laughs) And because, you know, we were best friends, but we were going out, but we were dating. And then we realized we couldn't afford to buy a house in New York. And we moved to Florida because... 
One of our members of our video dub play crew moved to Florida. Jason went to visit him, saw that we could get an affordable house, and we moved. I mean, economics. That is a microcosm of the entire story of American totally. migration to the Sun Belt over the last 50 years. Totally. Totally. Yeah. It was a place where we could get a house with a yard, and I didn't have to run across Eastern Parkway because we were living at the time near the sort of Brooklyn Museum, that yep, area yep. in New York. And you had to run, I had to take my daughter Winsome in her little buggy across, you know, Eastern Parkway, like three lanes of traffic going both ways to go to the park. And it was like, this is just not going to work and we can't afford a home. We need a house for these kids. And we needed to get married because West Indian parents were looking at us both like, so y'all got how many kids? Y'all ain't married? Yeah, we got, I actually got married pregnant with my second child. So we did it a little backwards. We'll be right back after we take this quick break. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. How did you, I'm curious about your political formation. Like how you, I grew up in a household that was pretty political. My, you know, we talked about politics a lot, the dinner table kind of thing. I'm curious where your political sensibilities came from, your political formation, how you sort of started to think in those terms. Well, I grew up in a very similar house. We talked about politics all the time. My mom would have these amazing dinner parties and the kids were actually allowed to hang around and people were always talking politics in my house. My mother was a Carter liberal and my father was a Reagan conservative. Mm. (laughs) And so they, I mean, their marriage clearly didn't work out. For a lot of reasons. I was going to say that that Cold War soft diplomacy really worked. <laughs> like <they> got- <laughs> it was wild. But yeah, my father was a big Reagan fan. And they used to, you know, when he was around, a lot of the conversation would be political. And we were a part of it. And, you know, when I was in the sixth grade aging myself, I just happened to wander in front of the TV when um, this show was on at night. I was up a little late um, on like a Friday night. And they were talking about this hostage crisis in Iran. And I was like mesmerized by it. And I asked my mom, can I sit up and watch it? And she was like, no problem. And she was a big news junkie. So I would sit up and watch this show that ended up becoming Nightline. Nightline, yeah. And I watched it every night. And I became obsessed with it. And then I started watching the Sunday shows and I was watching the news. And since my mom was a big political junkie, we'd watch it together. I mean, you know, she used to take us with her to vote when she finally got her citizenship. And, you know, I think she got her citizenship, I want to say in 79, because she got it in time to vote for Carter. And we went to vote with her. We were very, a very political family. Did you ever think you would be doing this, what you do now? You know what's so funny? No, because first of all, I made that commitment to be a doctor, which wasn't really a passion of mine. My passion was really news. And so the way that I ended up being able to shift to that was that my plan was broken. I didn't have any enforcement mechanism to stay in the pre-med world. I 
broke out of it. The documentary thing, you know, I'm making film, I'm making movies, being a, you know, children will quickly disabuse you of the idea that you can struggle and try to be a filmmaker when you have two little kids. And when we moved to Florida, my Spanish wasn't good enough for me to get a job doing something like, you know, marketing or something else. So I had to like plan a whole new career. And when I got to Florida, I was like, you know what? I'm just going to do something I like. I'm going to do something I'm interested in. So I, I wrote a letter to the Fox affiliate, Channel 7, WSVN, in Miami. And it was, a, it was a two-line letter. And I said, dear, to whom it may concern, whatever. I really love your, your 6 p.m. entertainment show. Do you think you could hire me, please? With a question mark. And they actually hired me. Wait, really? Yeah, but not for that show. They hired me. They said, we loved your letter. Um, it was very funny. But we actually need a morning show producer. Um, and you're, you'd be an AP. I got $7.50 an hour to come to work at 2 a.m. You had two children at this time? I had two little kids. Thank God Jason had a good job. He was working at the Discovery Channel in Miami. He's an editor. He's a video editor. So he, you know, had a job that could hold us down. And um, the only way I could really afford to do the job, because even with two people working, I worked at Burdine's department store during the day after my job writing for the morning show at WSVN. So I would get there at 2 a.m. and write and do, and we used to have to do everything, tape, pull tape. There used to be a thing called tape for all the young people out there. We had to pull tape. We had to write. And I would write, you know, my little morning show stuff and then leave, get on the little bus and go to Bernines and be a copywriter. And I would write for the fine jewelry and uh, lingerie departments. So I was writing news in the morning and then jewelry and lingerie ads. And you had two young kids. With two kids. How long did you do that? I did that for about a year and a half, and then that schedule was just too much for me. I mean, I was exhausted. And so I wrote another letter <laughs> to the NBC affiliate, which was closer to our house. And I was like, I need to be close to the house. So I wrote them a letter, and weirdly enough, they hired me to be a digital editor. So I was a digital editor at NBC, and that's how I actually got into news. So you, I mean, that's really interesting. So how has doing this job changed you? the way you think about politics, the way you think about communicating. Like I'm, I'm, I'm always thinking about the craft of what we do yeah. because we do it so much and it's so dominant in our lives. And I'm curious how you think about it. I think, I would say that, first of all, the collaborative process of doing these shows, I think people don't realize how many humans make a show like this, yep. right? And so it's really forced me to think collaboratively because when I was a digital editor, you don't really get to think a lot, right? You're just regurgitating whatever's on the television into a digital product that at the time, you know, these networks really didn't really respect the digital world. So they didn't really care what you were doing and they didn't want to break news online. It was really a struggle, but it was really your individual project. And I actually quit that job because of the Iraq war. I was so against the Iraq war. I wrote an op-ed for the Miami Herald, which the editor titled Against a Senseless War. I didn't make that title, but they made the mistake of accidentally putting my work email 
Ooh. on it. Because, you know, you had to publish your email when you did op-eds. And instead of give, using the email I sent it to the mom, which is my personal email, they used my work email. So I almost got fired from the NBC affiliate for that. But a guy named Ike Siemens, who was one of my mentors, who was this craggy old white dude, but he liked me because he would bring books to work and I was the only one who would take them. Because, you know, you bring books for everybody to take. Nobody took the books but me. So he was like, you know, I like you. So he introduced me to the editor at the Miami Herald who gave me an, a column. And my very first column was that column. and I almost got fired for it. And then when the Moab started being dropped on Iraq, I called Jason and I said, I'm going to quit my job. And knowing we had little kids and we had a lot of responsibilities, but I, I quit. And by that time, we had three kids. And I quit. And I went and worked in politics. And I worked for this, this thing called America Coming Together, which was George yeah. Soros put $260 act. million dollars act on the table to try to, over, uh, to try to defeat George W. Bush. We lost. And so I couldn't really go back to WTVJ. And I needed to find another job. I wound up getting a talk radio producing job by just sort of walking up to this guy named James T. Thomas, who was like a radio legend who was starting a thing at Radio One. He hired me to be his producer, and then I ultimately became his co-host. And then when the Obama campaign came to Florida, some of my old friends that had been in ACT uh-huh. were working on that campaign. They were like, hey, do you want to come and help us out? I went and worked on that campaign. We won. And suddenly I was a pundit. Because when you win, everybody wants to interview you. I was a right. press secretary. It's like, you were press secretary to Obama? Come and be on our shows. Right. And so, you know, so I, and I say all that to say that I came in through the pundit world, and I came in through talk radio, and I'm now actually getting to talk about the thing I was passionate about, which is politics, voting, things I cared about. And so this job has allowed me to take my passion for politics and for world affairs take it through a collaborative process, and then output something that hopefully is helpful for people to understand what's happening. So, I'm, Why is this happening? <laughs> yes. That's, well, so here's, I, I'm curious to hear you reflect on this. So I think a lot about like 2003, 2004, Iraq war, that re-election, the George W. Bush re-election, and now. Yeah. There's like, <laughs> there's a lot of things I wouldn't have anticipated, like the fact that like a lot of people that I associated with the worst excesses of the Iraq war have become like leading <laughs> never Trumpers. Yes. Which I did not see coming back then. Like at all. It's like, oh, Bill Crystal and David Frum really wrote some great pieces. Like, what? <laughs> and all of the different ways our politics have changed and not changed. Yeah. What is anything gotten better? <laughs> no. <laughs> You know, it's, and it's funny that you say that Nicole Wallace and I have talked about this. You know, we fought on the opposite sides of that 2004 Four election, race, yeah. weirdly enough. And now we're like great friends and I, I love and adore her. But it's wild that somebody like Nicole, we wound up on the same side. And so that has changed is that you, the allies that were created by Donald Trump were very surprising. You know, I never thought that Bill Crystal and I would ever agree on anything, but we end up agreeing on that. And, you know, Tom Nichols and some of the people that Jennifer Rubin, who I used to hate read her column, she's like now like, cool, I'm cool with her, you know? And their kind of worldview about America's role in the world, the one piece of it that actually this has changed that I think we've come to agree with them on from the progressive point of view is that the stabilizing influence of America being a democracy actually matters, right? And that if you have that world order in which the United States is not a democracy, that that actually impacts the world in a really negative way. So on that, the neocons and I agree. I still think the Iraq war was an apostasy to everything that America is supposed to be doing. And I still, I'm glad I opposed it. I feel proud of having opposed it. 
But I do believe that um, a lot of people who are on that anti-Iraq war side, we've learned to make allies of people who we are imperfect allies of. And I think that actually is a good change. Yeah, I agree. And I think the other thing that, that's interesting to me about that, about the sort of never Trump tendency, is that there's something, there was always something, I think, self-delusional, they, their vision of America, that I think was very destructively self-delusional about how great we are. And yeah. because we're great, we can't do terrible things. Mm -hmm. But the self-delusion is at least an aspirational vision of what America can be. Yeah. And Trumpism is so cynical mm -hmm. about America. Yeah. Like it really is a bizarre, even though it's like MAGA and all this stuff, it is a bizarrely cynical view yeah. of everything like law, democracy, equality, everything is just kind of this like Hobbesian world of war of all against all and might making right and like the laws only who can get away with what. Yeah. And there's no actual higher ideals. Mm -hmm. And I think that like that cynicism is really corrosive and dangerous and that there's a weird ideological allyship that's formed between people yeah. that whatever their vision of what America can be, at least is a vision of something great. <laughs> no, I actually, I, I totally agree with you. And the thing that's so interesting about the rights war against history is the irony of that is that no one has believed more in what America can be than the formerly enslaved. Yep. If you want to find a group of people and who had no reason to believe it because they were being treated like animals and cattle throughout their entire life. And then when they got free, the first thing they did was sign up to vote, run for office. They won office. They were, you know, blacks were the majorities in South Carolina, Louisiana, and Mississippi. And they promptly elected lieutenant governors, governors, senators, and joined this black and tan movement that was the actual multiracial democracy that we claim we want. That multiracial democracy actually existed for 12 beautiful years, right? And then when it was ended, it was ended with a, you know, sort of a carcerous, like, brutality, with extreme brutality um, in 1877. That, that deal that ended Reconstruction ended multiracial democracy. And then we've been trying to fight to somehow get it back. The people in the MAGA movement share the ideology of the people who ended Reconstruction. Because the idea is that the more perfect union isn't perfect if everyone gets to be a part of it, that we have to have an exclusionary union, that the only great America is the America in which straight white Christian men with money rule. Because let's just be clear, poor white people ain't in that either. Right. They don't think they should have anything either. And all of the machinations to try to force the rest of us to fight each other instead of fighting them, they're actually quite brilliant and they work, you know? And, you know, my parents are, but were both immigrants, or they both passed, but they were both immigrants. And so I've never had the delusion of American greatness. My parents came here buying the narrative and the marketing of America and believing it. And then my, my mom, you know, my godmother talks about the fact that they got to New York and experienced American racism in the 1960s. And we're like, oh, hold on. That's what America is. Oh, and they experienced it almost as observers as well as participants because as foreign blacks with that accent, they could get away with a lot more than American mm. blacks and had to fight for American blacks. Mm. And so they witnessed the horror and had to like intervene mm. for American black people. And so they really understood that the marketing wasn't true. But still, immigrants also believe 
You know, the people who don't believe are the people who are like the MAGA folks, who are like, that idea of multiracial democracy is, is bullshit and we're not going to let it happen. Yeah, and, there, and there's not, um, yeah, it's a vision of, of the country for some set of people as that the greatness is a bond between that set of people and the country. That's right. Why do you think, this is a, a difficult question, but there's a bunch of grand theories about why we reached the moment that we have reached with American democracy in such perilous, you know, situation. And I've got my own theories. I'm curious, like, tracking back to that 2004, like, what's happened in the last 20 years. What is it, what do you view as the sort of main causal actors that have brought the country to where it is? So I think one of the issues is demographic panic. Yeah. The thing a lot of people forget about 2008 is there wasn't just an election between a black man named Barack Hussein, like Saddam Hussein, Obama rhymes with Osama, right? Barack Hussein Obama is on the ballot. It's a big deal. But the other thing that happened that year is that the United States Census came out and announced the date at which America would become a non-white majority country. And the panic that that induced, I think we don't really remember, but there was a lot of panic about that announcement. And then to add to that announcement, Barack Hussein Obama wins the election, despite folks saying he's a secret Kenyan Muslim who hates America, he's a Mau Mau, blah, 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 blah. He still wins. Why did he win? He won because non-white voters gave him 80% of their votes collectively between Latinos, Asian Americans, and African Americans. African Americans gave him 90%. White Americans gave John McCain 60% of their votes. So what that election mm-hmm. said, mm-hmm. right, John Mc- that what that election told white America is that that black man who you think is a Kenyan Muslim can win over your objections. He won over your objections. That happened once and people said, okay, maybe we're in a post-racial America, we can live with it, but he ain't gonna win again. <laughs> when he goes to run for re-election, he wins again, despite six out of 10 white voters voting for Mitt Romney. Oh, now we have a trend. And I think that the same panic that was induced by Reconstruction Hmm. and very wealthy white conservatives seeing what a small, relatively small number of black people can do. South Carolina, they created public schools, free public schools. That didn't exist before. That was a Reconstruction thing. The idea that they were saying- Free public schools for everyone, we should know. For everyone in a society that was at the time not literate among white people. Correct. And the trend that I think that very, very wealthy white interests noticed is that when black voters vote, they tend to vote for very liberal public policy. Things like healthcare, things like public schools, they tend to vote for those things, which also benefit poor white people. That it tends to be coalition building if you let it. And I think there is a fear that public policy that is progressive produces more taxation on the rich. Oh, yeah. And that's always been the driving force behind our division. Because it's easier to get poor whites to fight poor black people and get them fighting each other and keep them distracted from fighting rich white people, right? That's a better outcome for these groups. Think about the Tea Party movement. Who funded that? Very, very rich. Very, very rich people. 
And they have been on a project from the very beginning of this nation to keep everybody else fighting each other so they can keep getting richer. I mean, the, perf- the most perfect example, word. The most perfect example of this, there's two examples. Two things I'll never forget. One is that after Trump wins, one of the first things he does is he shows up at this like fancy New York City <laughs> club the next day yeah. where people are eating. It's like, a, it's like a caricature of rich people. They're like, I think they're in actual tuxedos. <laughs> And he goes in, there's footage of this. We played it on the show and he, he shakes hands. He's like, I'm going to get your taxes down. Yeah. Like the next day. Yeah. And then the other thing that I think really, the most remarkable thing is that when you look at what are the actual tangible lasting domestic policy accomplishments of the Trump administration that last, not he tried to do the wall. There's one big one. piece of legislation. It's an enormous tax cut that's for correct. corporations correct. and for rich people. That's, that's it. it. That's what they that's got. It. Like, and, and they were locked and loaded for that. They couldn't get ACA done. He couldn't even get the wall built. The one thing that they could get on the same page about amongst their fractious coalition. Correct. After all that, after all the populism mm-hmm. and all the, you know, we're going to ban all the Muslims mm-hmm. and yada, yada. The one thing they got just like locked in yeah. and they were able to get across was that. And that speaks a lot to your thesis. Right. And when and, and whenever I hear Republicans say, yeah, I didn't like Trump's personality, but I liked his policies. I always ask, which policies? And I wish more reporters would ask them that. Because people say, you know, I, I don't like everything he did and I don't like his tweets, but I liked his policies. Again, which policies? Because he only had one policy that he signed. The tax cut. Right. And, he, you know, that's December of... 2017, they passed that tax cut. And that tax cut was so good to Paul Ryan because that was his driving dream. He was like, peace, I'm going to go work for Fox. He left. He did his tax cut and bounced. He got it. He got that money and was like, bye-bye. And that was that was the point. There's that that idea of the first hundred days, you know, and you go back and you look at all these presidents' first hundred days. President Obama, there were a hundred years of Democrats trying to get universal health care. Yep. This was FDR wanted it, couldn't get it past the doctor's lobby. LBJ, you know, sneaked in Medicaid and Medicare. And so we've been expanding the Social Security Act little by little by little. The only reason that we were able to get Obamacare is that we, you know, you got that 60 seats in the United States Senate, right? First thing, as soon as I got the 60 seats, they're like, we're using this for health care. So that was Obama's big accomplishment. Trump's big accomplishment was to hand Yeah. To what, $1 trillion to like eight, you know, there was a study that showed that 82 families split a trillion dollars off of that or a billion dollars off of that, sorry. It's like, that was a tax cut for like 400 people. Yeah. And what it it also says to me, and I think relates to the current turmoil of the speaker race, which is what's so striking to me as I watch this speakership race happen and I watch the Republican debates is just the sheer ideological bankruptcy and exhaustion at the center of the Republican governing project. Yeah. It's like, what do you, you know, the reason that Democrats were able to stay united and wield a narrow majority is A, Nancy Pelosi is extremely good at her job. Yes. B, I think there's like a dispositional difference in the kinds of people that get elected to Democratic politics Mm -hmm. and Republicans. But see, the most important is that there was an actual governing project they were all invested in. Like there was stuff people wanted to do with Mm -hmm. the power. There were bills they wanted to pass. There's stuff they want to get into riders and omnibus bills. People are invested in this project. 
when you look at the Republican Party, it's like, what are you what are you trying to do? Right. If you watch the Republican debates, they sound like someone put them in a time machine back to 2011 with some kind of like later like anti-woke, what, you know, whatever <laughs> nonsense culture war stuff. Right. But fundamentally, the governing vision is like, it's what you're saying. It's like, let's get those capital gains taxes down. It's tax cuts and deregulation. But they don't have, even that feels like they run out of steam on that. I'm just like, I'm watching all of this and I'm finding myself increasingly incapable of even parsing what the factions are yeah. and what the politics are because I'm like, what are you people even fighting about? Right. What do you, what do you want? What do you want to do with the power? No one seems to have an answer. The thing that's so wild is that, you know, the difference between a normie Republican like a Michael Steele and these Republicans is that right. Michael Steele and others come from that era of Republican politics, that Reagan era where they wanted two things, tax cuts and deregulation. And they were very clear on that. Mm -hmm. The Democrats are the party of tax and spend. We're going to get you a tax. It's just tax cuts, tax cuts, tax cuts. You're right. This current iteration of Republicans, what they seem to want is attention. Yes. What they want is to be on Fox and to be online and to have a hit podcast and to be seen. What freaks? <laughs> <laughs> they, they just want to be seen. They want to be heard. They just want to yell and scream. And the thing about the Republican Party is that if they wanted something, they are more of a monochromatic party. They are 90% white. It should be easier to get everyone together. They Democrats, have less difference. It's like less- herding cats. Democrats have blacks, gays, <laughs> Jewish people, Christians, right. people who are irreligious, Asians. You know, they, we have everybody. Democrats are such a polyglot. Moving us to the left is impossible. We are, it is a mess. And I've been a Democrat. You know, look, I have a show where I'm allowed to say my party affiliation. I've been a Democrat my whole life. They're a hot mess. Democrats are a mess. They're every, they're every iteration, every age. You got young people, old people. We just got everything. You got like, you know, old hippies from the 60s. Yeah. And you got young folks. You got everybody. Yeah. And we have to make them all move in one yes, direction. And it's, it's very impossible. hard. Coalition politics, exactly. And yet so much better at doing it. But you know why? Because Democrats, whether you are, a, you know, hippie from the 60s or you're a, a member of the squad, there are a certain number of things you want and that you both want. That's you right. want health care. All of y'all agree, right? right? You all agree that people should have health care, that people shouldn't die of treatable diseases, right? You agree that you want gun reform. Actually, a lot of Republicans want it too. You agree that women should control your own body. And so... For as much of a, as a polyglot, like sort of, yes. you know, mess as Democrats are, there are certain ideas they agree on. People should have the right to vote. More of our conversation after this quick break. You like to watch new stuff, right? Well, go to Hulu and see what's new because Hulu has new stuff all the time. Like Vanderpump Villa, the new docudrama starring Lisa Vanderpump, where first-class luxury meets world-class drama. A new season of The Kardashians starring The Kardashians, of course. And Grand Cayman, Secrets in Paradise, the sizzling new reality show set in the tropical Caribbean. It's all new and it's streaming now on Hulu. You can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. 
this brings us to the sort of, I think, final theme here, which is why I think it has been so hard to both replace Trump or reproduce his effect. Yes. It is interesting how many people have tried to be like him and failed. And we saw that in the midterms, right? There were people yep. that were, you know, the Kari Lakes and the Blake Masters and the Doug Mastrianos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> like, that guy ran an exceptionally terrible race. It was almost impressive. Horrible. Um, it's like, just, yeah. What's the opposite of a good campaign? But like, <laughs> it has proven to be difficult. I think it's going to prove to be difficult in the speakership. And partly I think it is because his strange charisma, and he has genuine charisma, mm-hmm. married to his bizarre feral instinct for people's kind of worst parts of themselves Mm -hmm. and his own deep and sort of almost unparalleled brokenness combines to create a thing that is just hard to copy. And right now it's holding together a coalition that doesn't actually know what it wants to do as a governing vision and wielding power. Yeah. And when you take it away, when you take it out and you run, you have the Republican debates or you have a speakership race, obviously he's involved in that. Mm -hmm. That vacuum is very apparent. Yeah. And it's not like, it's like, yeah, Jim Jordan is sort of a, you know, he's a Trump faction guy. He's been endorsed right. by Trump. He's Trump-like, but he ain't Trump. No. You know what I mean? Like, and you see that with everyone that tries to do this, yeah. which makes me wonder, and I find as a sort of slightly hopeful note, which is that there is something sui generis to the deep malevolence of him as a figure that is obviously born of structural things like the panic and the demographic backlash, but that so far I have not seen anyone. And the person who was supposed to do that, person that you cover a lot on your show, <laughs> is Ron DeSantis. Yeah. Can we just, <laughs> I'm gonna put like five minutes on the clock to, <laughs> to talk about how badly his campaign has sucked. I mean, he's the inverse of Trump, right? He's the inverse of Trump. Right, because he does, he's, he's negative charisma. Negative charisma. Um, it's really, it genuinely is impressive how uncharismatic he is. And the only place Ron DeSantis could ever be elected to dog catcher is Florida, <laughs> where a puddle of warm poop <laughs> could get elected as long as it's a Republican. Puddle of warm poop. Why though? What, what, why did the structural features of that state Here's the miniature version of the Ron DeSantis story. The structural features of the state's demographic and voting populations changed in a way that made him look more successful as a politician than he actually is. Mm -hmm. And there was a little bit of a mistake happening in the analysis. And you were out front on this. You were, were, this was the Joy Reid take. I've heard this take (laughs) next to me at the table. What, What is it about was it the COVID? I think there's like a COVID influx. There's a COVID thing, yeah. Yeah, like so a selection the, effect that happened during COVID. The very brief story of Ron DeSantis is that, number one, Florida is a state that is the most elderly state. Pennsylvania and it sort of go back and forth over which is the most elderly state. But it's a very, it's a state with a lot of older folks. And it's a state with a lot of retired people. And they care about literally one thing, low taxes. That's it. Keep my taxes low. And right. so Republicans have a structural advantage because they're the low right. taxes party. They're the party that will never implement a higher state income tax. And so they all get elected almost no matter what. It's very hard for a Democrat to get elected in that state, period. There was a candidate named Alex Sink 
who was for a while their COO. And Alex Sink not only was, she was a Democrat, she was also a woman. But the way that Alex Sink won is that Alex Sink never put her picture on any of her ads and people thought that was a guy. And so they were like, oh, a guy named Alex Sink. I think I can elect him. And then they found that it was a her and they were like, oh. And then when she tried to run for other stuff, they were like, we now know who you are. Please leave. <laughs> Um, and so, he, you know, he gets elected because all Republicans get elected. So, right. right? So he comes in, Ron DeSantis, in 2018. He narrow wins win. Narrowly. He yeah. beat his African-American opponent who galvanized black Floridians in a way that only Barack Obama had before him. He beats him by 38,000 votes, barely squeaks in. But he wins. When it comes time for his reelect, he basically benefited from the fact that other than Barack Obama being there, and I'm saying this having done two elections there, voter turnout and generating voter turnout is very hard in Florida. Younger Floridians, African-Americans, Latinos, they vote at very, very low rates. Very, very, it's, you have to drag them out of the polls unless Barack Obama is literally on the ballot. Yeah. And so he takes advantage of the fact that 1.3 million people stayed home. One of the ways he helped to generate that was by introducing a fear factor. Florida had voted to allow, to reenfranchise former felons. They voted for that by 65%. White, black, Latino, everyone voted for it. He comes in, the Republican legislature implements what amounts to a poll tax, saying you have to pay all these fees and fines before you can get your voting rights back. It's like 50 grand for some people. They can't afford it. But some people who had, you know, their, their case had been adjudicated, they think they can vote. They go into the DMV, they're given a voter card, they're like, I can vote. He then ostentatiously arrests a bunch of them, makes sure it's on TV, humiliates these that people, was... and terrifies people. I have friends that work in elections down there and said, black folks who have no criminal record, we're scared. They were like, I'm not going to risk getting arrested. And black turnout plummets. And you essentially have, he wins by omission. People just don't come out and vote. And then there's a combination of that and apathy in the state. Again, without Barack Obama on and with that loss, for, by that $38,000 loss, demoralized a lot of black voters. And there was just this sort of ennui. People just didn't vote. Yeah. And so people f perceive him as having this great victory. But it was a great victory because people just didn't vote. Well, the thing I always point to, too, is that, like, he and Rubio run by the exact same amount, more or less. So it's not, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, it's like, it, clearly there was something structural going on. Totally. And you saw it up and down. Now, people, the story that he told was the reason you had Republicans doing so well in Florida up and down the ballot was the DeSantis coattails. Yeah. That was the story, rather than he was a beneficiary of the same structural factors that was driving Republican right. victories everywhere. And then the primary got to be the rare randomized control trial of the hypothesis. Yeah. And then- Like, is this guy a, like a once-in-a-generation politician? Exactly. Well, I think and, we have an answer. Well, and the thing is, he benefited from switching his position on COVID. So what Ron DeSantis did, I think, is one of the most cynical things that anybody did when it came to COVID. I agree. He essentially said, I'm opening up the state. But before he did that, he made sure to get the vax, yes. which he claims he isn't for, to all the older folks. Yes. Because he wanted to make sure that Florida didn't have a disproportionately high death toll among old, because it's got so many seniors. But he made sure that the older folks that got it were mainly richer and white. He put it in Publix. Publix is a supermarket that does not exist in the hood. It doesn't exist in lower income areas. So he made sure by strategically partnering with Publix, which is, you know, the lady who owns it and founded it is a MAGA Trumper. Yep. So he partners with Publix to make sure rich white people in Florida get the vax. Then he does a thing where he says, no, you need to take Regeneron. We don't have to worry about the vax, you younger people. Go to this pop-up clinic and that's where you can get treated. So go ahead and get COVID. He refuses to let schools have mask mandates 
mandates. He sues cruise lines if they try to have masks and uh, mandates for the vaccine. He basically says this state is open now that he's protected the older people. And he does this ostentatious way of saying, we will not protect against COVID. We will simply treat COVID with a drug that happens to be made by one of my donors' companies. (laughs) That actually produced a disproportionately high rate of death in Florida. But the storyline was the Bill Maher storyline. This is the best place in the whole country. It's the only place you can go to a comedy club, go to a club. You can go to the barbershop. You can go to the gym. And so the perception of people who were frustrated with the closures was that Florida is paradise. And so he rode that into people thinking he might be the answer. He's, a, he's Trump without the baggage. Okay, but unfortunately, he's not Trump at all. Yes. He literally has no charisma. Even Republican friends of mine in Florida can't stand him. They're like, we don't even like this guy. But we are very happy to send him to Washington if you want him. But he also had a supermajority in the state legislature that were like, what do you need in order to win? He was like, I'm going to need a six-week abortion ban. I'm going to need to ban all these books. I'm going to need to ban drag shows. I need to put on a big show of shutting down drag shows. I need to shut down, you know, black history. He did all the things because he has Christopher Rufo, who is the architect of this phony strategy of making up a fake version of CRT, advising him. And so he essentially creates in Florida what you could call a sort of white utopia, where if you are white, it's literally illegal to make you feel uncomfortable in Florida. (laughs) Literally. The Stop Woke Act means that you are not allowed to make white children feel uncomfortable. You can make black kids feel uncomfortable. You can make gay kids feel uncomfortable. They're not white people or white children. And so he creates a sort of white utopia model, which the national Republicans say, great, we can have that without the baggage. But here's the problem. Trump's quote-unquote baggage is also his strength. It's his charismatic approach and his ability to communicate in a way that is sometimes funny, is sometimes not self-deprecating, but like deprecating of other people, but with a comedic twist to it. He still knows how to perform like he did on The Apprentice. And he still seems roughly like the guy from The Apprentice. And so a lot of Americans don't find him threatening. They find him amusing. The media finds him amusing. And so DeSantis doesn't have that skill set. As a matter of fact, he doesn't have any communicative skills at all. And he doesn't seem to like people, which you kind of need to if you want to be a politician. Well, I think... And he eats pudding with his fingers, which is disgusting. I will say this. You, your thesis, your, your, you predicted that he would absolutely flame out in the primary, and you have so far... I mean, again, you never know what happens. It's a, we learned it's a crazy world. It is. I always think about... I always think about... New Year's Eve of 2019 into 2020 when I was thinking about like, what am I going to do in 2020? <laughs> As in, what's going what's to store this year? Um, so we don't know the future, but you predicted <laughs> that uh, correctly and you predict many things correctly and you are an incredible asset to American public conversation and to our network. Thank Everybody, you. Everybody, Joy Reid. Thank you. Thank you, Chris. Philadelphia, you have, you have been amazing. Uh, Incredible stamina on a Monday night. We are so, so honored and grateful for your attention. Have a great night. (laughs) 
Once again, my great thanks to my good, good friend and colleague, Joy Reid. I love that conversation. I learned so much about her. I'm just so glad that we did that. I hope you enjoy it too. You can get in touch with us on X, a site formerly known as Twitter, using the hashtag WithPod. You can follow us on TikTok by searching WithPod. Threads now has a search function. You can follow us there. Uh, look for us there on uh, hashtag WithPod or Christelle Hayes, which is my handle, or Blue Sky, where I'm at Christelle Hayes as well. Why is this happening is presented by MSNBC and NBC News, produced by Donnie Holloway and Brendan O'Melia. This episode was engineered by Bob Mallory and features music by Eddie Cooper. Aisha Turner is the executive producer of MSNBC Audio. You can see more of our work, including links to things we mentioned here by going to NBCNews.com slash why is this happening? You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.